0: We're going to start today with with a quick uh, just review of our vision. Our vision, simplified, is we want to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches. And vibrant churches are not just buildings. The church is not a building. The building contains the church, right, churches. Uh, and, and vibrant churches, reproducing vibrant churches, are not just church planting, but we're talking about individual souls. We're talking about individual members of Jesus' body. And what is a vibrant member of Jesus' body look like? What does a disciple look like? And that's individuals who seek to love God and people passionately, who seek to live authentically as genuine disciples. You're going to see both of those in today's message just arise about Peter needing to really love Jesus. Uh, and 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 you're going to see living authentically. You see one genuine disciple, and then you see a false disciple in Judas, right? But you see in Peter a restored disciple, giving generously as stewards of God's kingdom. Number three and number four, going courageously as everyday missionaries. So you're going to see a little bit of that courage and that call to courage in our emerge from our passage today. But today we begin another another mini series. In, um, in Mark's gospel as we go through, entitled Characters Surrounding the Crucifixion. Characters Surrounding the Crucifixion. And today is part one of maybe three or four. You know, I, I kind of just like to let the spirit lead and and, and and we do prepare ahead of time, but maybe, that's the nice thing about being able to preach four weeks straight, maybe there will be one message where I'm just like, you know, this is where our Flock needs shepherding. And that's what I feel today. So rather than following through chapter 14 in chronological order, I really feel like when you look at Judas and Peter, it is an opportunity to be shepherded by the good shepherd. And so we're going to take this topically today. Rather than going through the rest of chapter 14 in chronological order, we're going to jump around and we're going to follow the narrative development of each character. Okay, And we're going to have to go outside of Mark, as well, to come up with a big idea. So today we're going to have a big idea. And I joked with, you know, Gabe and Kevin as they were helping me prepare. I said there's going to be a bigger idea, right, because the gospel doesn't leave, leave us with a tragedy. Okay, so so let's jump in today. This is what we're going to see today. Today we're going to see that Christ was betrayed by two of his disciples. You may not see Peter's denial of Jesus as a betrayal, but when you look at how how fervently Peter cursed and swore upon himself that he did not know Christ. You're going to see that as a betrayal. Judas betrayed Jesus, and we know that, but Peter also betrayed Jesus. But there's stories then very differently. Whereas Peter repented and experienced restoration, Judas hung himself out of wrestling with shame and guilt and trying to bear that himself. And we're going to see what happened. So today we'll focus on Judas and Peter. But I want to start with this question. and I, I believe it's a fair question. Could, Jesus, uh, could Judas have repented? Could Judas have repented? We know that he had remorse. We know from Matthew's gospel that he had a conscience. That he realized that Jesus was innocent. And that he betrayed an innocent man. And he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver. But yet at the end of the day, he went and he committed suicide in his own shame and guilt. But could he have repented? And we know that oftentimes it says scripture needed to be fulfilled. So we understand that God had ordained in his plan that someone needed to betray Jesus. Uh, And so that happened to be Judas, the son of perdition. But couldn't that scripture still be fulfilled and Judas repent? Just think about that. Couldn't we open the scriptures and all of the prophecies saying that there had to be a son of perdition? And so you do have a disciple betray Jesus Christ, but then Jesus goes and dies and resurrects and Judas faces Jesus and says, Jesus, I realize I'm wrong. I I deserve to die. Will you forgive me? And isn't it the nature of the gospel that Jesus says, look, I went to the cross to die for a vile sinner like you. Couldn't that be the end of Judas' story? It could have. So you could have had accuracy in prophetic fulfillment and a repentance of a betrayed, of a disciple. And that would be a powerful testimony, but that's not how history has it. That's not how the Bible writes it, writes it out. And today I want you to see why. And, and, and I believe one of the reasons you begin to understand is that Judas didn't know who Jesus really was. He didn't understand the true person of Christ. He didn't understand the plan of Christ. And he didn't understand the power of Christ. And when you consider these things, then Judas doesn't seem like this far-out evil character that you and I can't relate to. In fact, when I read Judas' story and the tragedy leading up to it, I see so much of my own heart and and my own idolatry. And you should see yours too, but the only difference is that our stories, if you have Christ, does not end in tragedy because, because we, we see and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that Let's go to Mark 14. If you have God's word, go with me to Mark 14. Mark 14, where I want you to see point number one this morning. So point number one this morning is that Judas was driven by greed, then overcome by guilt. We're not going to spend too much time on this fact that Judas was driven by greed, because I think we all understand that. It's so easy in our culture to to use the name Judas to describe a betrayer or a traitor. Right, Judas is synonymous with the worst of the worst, a scum, despicable, a despicable character. I don't think we have to build that up too much. Everybody's like, Yeah, okay, we hate Judas. We don't like dishonest people who make up plots. And and, and we even see that in the media today, right? In in terms of people who make up fabrications. And everyone just turns on them. So we could easily just nail Judas, and we know that Judas was driven by greed. He was blinded by his love for money. We explained this in the past two sermons. That once Judas realized that Jesus would not establish his his political kingdom, now that that Jesus was not going to establish a political kingdom that was greater to the Roman, greater than the Roman Empire, all of Judas's dreams began to collapse because Judas thought to himself. You know what? I want to follow Jesus, not because I truly love him, but because I love the idea of what he might offer. That if Judas, uh, that if Jesus establishes this powerful messianic kingdom, and if I'm one of his key leaders, then I will be rich and powerful and mighty and with power and money and resources comes a comfortable lifestyle because that's what money affords us, right? A lot of us, we would, we would not say that we love money. But if we are honest with ourselves, we do desire what money gives us, which is safety, security, and a comfortable lifestyle. And so because of that, Judas says, I don't want Jesus anymore. And he looks for every opportunity to say, this guy's not going to make my dreams come true. He's not the Messiah that I really want. He's not going to save me in the way that I want to be saved, which is I want to be saved from this you know, earthly kingdom. I want a rich earthly kingdom instead. So then he turns on Jesus for money. And we looked at that already last week. But today, I want to take you to the scene of the betrayal because I want you to see deeper what Judas felt to grasp. Look with me at verse 43, Mark 14, verse 43. And let's look at verses 43 to 45 for this first point that we're going to make, okay? In verse 43, it says, And immediately, while he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came. Notice that Mark says one of the 12. It doesn't say enemy, betrayer. One of the 12. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs. That's not the club you dance in, but that's like a, a baseball bat. Okay, From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, I will kiss The one I will kiss is the man. This is a kiss on the cheek. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him and once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Notice that Mark identifies Judas as one of the 12. And what does Mark want you to know? So at a narrative level, Mark wants you to know that Jesus is not betrayed by someone from the outside. He is betrayed from a dear friend, and this speaks to the despicable character of Judas. But this builds you up to the fact that Judas, if he just understood and grasped who Jesus was, he wouldn't have done this. But he clearly did not understand who Jesus was, even after three years of an intimate relationship with Jesus. This is one of his apostles per se, right? Because you would have 12 apostles, and you still understand 12 apostles until it's revealed that Judas is going to betray him. And so then there's 11 apostles, but then Jesus replaces Judas with with another apostle later. But this is like one of your lieutenants, one of your inner circle, right? Someone from within betrays you. That's the most evil type of betrayal. And, And the symbol of his betrayal is a kiss. Now, I want to begin to build up on this concept of shame and honor, which you guys are talking about in in Sunday school, if you have the privilege of attending that. The Middle Eastern Mediterranean culture, especially in the first century, is an honor-shame culture. But honor and shame a lot of times is driven by a desire to save yourself. Why are you ashamed? You're ashamed because you let someone else down, and it's what people think of you or your family. You're ashamed because of how the community sees you. And what Judas does is shameful. It is shameful to the utmost degree, but he's so blind to this. But the ironic thing, ironic thing is later, he dwells in his shame. So that's ironic to me. Why would you dwell in your shame when you have a Savior that's going to go bear that shame, but you're so blind to commit something that's so shameful? Judas is completely blinded by his love for money. You you know, it's, it's like tunnel vision. He loves money so much that he's so blinded that he's not ashamed to be completely shameful, disgraceful, and shameless. And that's why he uses a kiss. I mean, scholars will come up with some of the most ridiculous things. Scholars will say, you know what, it's dark. It was dark. So Judas is not that bad of a guy. It was dark, so therefore they couldn't see. And this, this Gethsemane garden was like a campground. And, and so Judas had to go up and, and, and kiss him to identify him because all these men looked the same. That may have been true, but scholars sometimes, the critical scholars, fail to miss the theological point that what Judas does is extremely shameful. And the other thing is that Judas already knows that Jesus knows that it's him. It's no secret. So why go up to him and betray him with a kiss? Already in the Lord's Supper and in the Passover meal, we saw that last week, that Jesus already identified Judas. You are the betrayer. So Judas, why don't you just be a man, have some dignity, look Jesus in the face and tell him, Jesus, I don't believe in you. You're, you're a weak Messiah. You're not the Messiah that I want. Instead, he's so blinded, right? He's so blinded that he's still going to go up to him and say, Rabbi but he knows that Jesus knows. So he goes and he kisses Jesus and says, Rabbi, why is this such a, a, a disgraceful act? This kiss was a common Mediterranean greeting, especially in the first century, between dear intimate friends. Particularly a rabbi would, would give a kiss on the cheek to his disciple. But instead, Judas kisses his rabbi and he says, Rabbi, my teacher. Another thing is in in Middle Eastern and in Mediterranean culture, it is disgraceful to turn and betray your own teacher. You guys understand this, right? I mean, you understand this to every degree, that when you have someone who's invested everything in you as a teacher, poured their life into you, and then you turn on them and betray them, that is disgraceful in the eyes of the community, but in the eyes of the world. And so that's why it is so shameful that even even, Je- even Jesus says to Uh, to Judas. In Luke chapter 22, verse 48, this is Luke's version of it. Jesus actually says to Judas, says, says, Judas, are you kidding me? That's not what it says. That's the HIV version, (laughs) you know, Hanley International, right? But, but, but Jesus said to him, and I know HIV is a disease and everything like that, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Are you kidding me? That's what Jesus, are you kidding me? Are you really going to betray me this way, with this symbol? And this is why Judas goes on in history as completely despicable. But I want, again, I want you to look at the irony. There's a great tragedy here that the reason why Judas is so blind is that he clearly doesn't understand Jesus' person, power, and plan. He doesn't understand the greater plan and the kingdom plan. He doesn't understand that God's kingdom runs on spiritual power. And the tragedy is spiritual power is exactly what Judas is going to need. Judas is going to need a spiritual Messiah because only a spiritual Messiah who a crucified Messiah will forgive you. Judas wants a military Messiah. But the, a military, can you imagine if you betrayed a military Messiah, what happens when some guerrilla warfare guy and his lieutenant betrays him? He's going to cut his head off, right? Correct? But if you have a Messiah who's going to go be crucified for sinners and you betray him, what's the chances that that Messiah is going to forgive you? 100%. I went to the cross to die for someone like you. That's exactly what Judas is going to need. But right now, he's so blinded that he can't see it. And Mark wants us to see this. Go back to verse 43. Mark 14, 43. Notice this says, immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and notice this, with him, a crowd with swords and clubs. And he comes with all of Jesus' enemies, right? Chief priests, scribes, and elders. So he turns on Jesus and And joins Jesus' enemies momentarily. But why would you need swords and clubs? Judas, have you learned anything that Jesus is way more powerful than human weaponry? Right? You can't contain Jesus with swords and clubs. But why would you actually think that you would need to bring those things? It's probably because in in Judas' mind, he wanted a military kingdom. Because in worldly. In, in a worldly sense, worldly power is military power. And military power, especially back then, leads to economic power. All right, so, so Judas comes and maybe he assumes, and the religious leaders are blind too, they assume that Jesus and his disciples are going to fight back, that they're going to put up a physical fight. And that's when they clearly don't understand that Jesus doesn't need physical defense because he's God. And, and notice in verse 44, seize him. That's what Judas says, seize him, like arrest him and lead him away under guard. You see that? Under guard. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that, that Jesus needs to wear under armor, but it's simply saying, like arrest him. You need to contain him. And this completely misses the point. Jesus is not some guerrilla warfare revolutionary that's going to fight back with weapons. And that's exactly the point Mark wants us to see because look at verses 48 and 49. Look at what Jesus says. In verses 48 to 49, Jesus actually says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And notice what he's saying. He's saying, you still don't get it. Judas, you don't get it. Day after day, I was with you in the temple. And he says it to the the Jewish religious leaders too, right? Because basically here he's talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. He says, I was with you in the temple teaching. And why didn't you arrest me then? You didn't arrest me then. You didn't take the opportunity then. But let the scriptures be fulfilled anyway, meaning go ahead and arrest me. I was going to give myself over to you anyway. Judas clearly doesn't understand the plan of Christ to go to the cross, but he doesn't understand the power, the spiritual power, the nature of the cross. The cross is sufficient to save the vilest of sinners, even Judas, if he were to repent. But we know that he didn't. And so again, I want you to see the gospel irony. Because Judas, he dwells in his guilt and shame. He becomes self-absorbed in this shame. Judas, why are you so ashamed? You did the most shameful thing. Why are you so ashamed? Why don't you go face Jesus? But he can't. You know, here's where we get into some application where some people say, oh, it's not Jesus' fault. Someone had to betray Jesus. Like I mentioned in the introduction, it says right here, right, scripture had to be fulfilled, which means Jesus had to be betrayed. He had to be turned over. He had to be arrested. Someone had to do it. That's not true. It is true that Judas is the son of perdition, and that that God ordained for Judas to betray Jesus. But when you look at the rest of Scripture, there is a divine mystery that we need to submit to. And the rest of Scripture teaches this tension of divine sovereignty where God is completely sovereign and in control, but at the same time, everything else in the Scripture says humans need to be responsible for our actions and will be judged for our actions. And there is a level where, where Judas could have repented. And we know that because Peter does. Right. So I'll see you, I'll show that to you. You'll see that in the next point. But we know that what God ordained is fulfilled and scripture is fulfilled because Judas plays into it. Right. He himself, out of his own free will, did not repent. And so in one sense, Judas goes along with God's plan because the son of man goes as it is written. But all of scripture, all of scripture teaches that sinners can repent. When you think about it, right. Judas betrayed Jesus, but how many of us have betrayed Christ for money? And maybe some of you are like, you know, you haven't. Okay, but just pray about it, right? Where are the times where we are tempted to prioritize money or comfort of this world over Christ? And we'll all raise our hands and say, you know, we struggle with that, even if it's at the thought level. And... If you had a believer who was following Christ, but for five years of their their lives struggled and chose the world or their career instead, and then five years later came back to church, would we say to that person, you can't repent because you betrayed Christ for money? And, And we would say, well, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. When you look at what Peter did, it's the same thing. We're all Judas That's why I love Judas. The more and more I study Judas, my heart breaks for him. And so at this point of my sermon preparation, I just paused. And I said, God, I need this application so much for myself. I I need this application for myself. I I need the gospel to come alive right here for me. Because I love Judas now. I, I see in Judas the common struggle of man. If you go to the next slide for me. Have you noticed Matthew 27, 3 to 5? This is the end of Judas' story. This is the end of Judas' story. I want you to see the gospel could be applied to Judas, but instead he dwells and tries to bear his shame himself. Look at this. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Is that repentance? I don't think it is because he doesn't go through with it. But but notice it says he changed his mind. Since when in the kingdom of God can, can you change your mind and want Jesus? And Jesus says, no, you can't come, right? So the gospel is active. The gospel goes out to all, but not all want it. Instead, some people are like, no, I'm so sinful. I'm so evil. Jesus doesn't want me. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver, which is anywhere from $150 to $200. Some people say $600. And he brought his money back to the chief priests and elders saying, notice, is this a confession? I don't think it's a saving confession. But look at this. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, if someone were to come in today and say that, saying, look, I've changed my mind about my life. I've sinned betraying Christ, and I need his blood. Jesus would say, you have it. Take it. I died for you. But Judas goes only so far. He only goes so far. He knows the gospel now, but he doesn't know it relationally, personally, right? And look, it says, they said, what is this to us? See it. See to it yourself. And notice this, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. Boom. He says, I don't want the money. Take it. He departed, and rather than repenting, and rather than waiting and saying, i got to face Jesus, he went and he hanged himself. So this is the difference. This is where I need the application for myself. Remorse is different from repentance. Remorse can be self-centered. You know, a lot of times I still feel guilty that I was a bad kid. Uh, You know, and sometimes I'm like, God, you know, that's why you took my life into ministry. I'm going to spend the rest of my life paying you back. I mean, that's not really what I think, but sometimes I still feel bad. And so sometimes when I make mistakes, I still dwell on it and say, oh, man, that, you know, the root of that anger is from my childhood. I'm never going to get over this. But the more you think about that, right, if you sit there and you make a mistake or you sin or, or if you've made mistakes in your past or you're struggling with sin now, And you dwell in that, and you try to bear it yourself. Is that not trying to to do salvation by works? You you don't think of it that way, but is that not a rejection of the gospel? Because Jesus is saying to Judas, in a sense, Judas, don't you understand that you don't have to go kill yourself? Not only am I going to go physically die for you, because if you kill yourself, what does that do? That doesn't satisfy your soul. But don't you know that I am going to the cross to bear your sin? Judas, do you not know the gospel that Abraham sinned? But he trusted in the promise. Do you not know that Moses sinned and killed the man? But it was saved by the gospel. Do you not understand that David sinned and sinned with Bathsheba and sinned by turning to the world and even struggled with idolatry? But do you not know that that he repented and I took him back? That's what I'm going to the cross for. You clearly Judas are blind to the gospel, but if you would just reach out for it, if you would just understand it, why are you bearing the shame yourself? So you can sit there, you could turn on the music, whatever, and miserable music, you could dwell on your sin, you can dwell on your shame, and, and it's good to have sorrow, right, over sin, but, but you could just let it eat you up and fall into a depression. And it doesn't do anything. One, it doesn't satisfy your soul, it doesn't make you feel better at the end of the day, and it doesn't bring you forgiveness and but that's the power of the gospel and that's why it's so ironic that Judas is so close to Jesus but he can't see it now you can think of people in the church who can relate to Judas right where we're dwelling and dwelling and we think that Jesus can't save us and and, and we think that we can't face Jesus in that moment and we think that we need to feel guilty which you do have to feel conviction but see remorse is different from repentance because repentance goes to understand that I cannot pay for my own sin not by feeling guilty for it not by taking my life for it I cannot pay for my sin that's the gospel that's why Jesus had to go pay for it now I want you to see that Peter is just as bad but Peter later is transformed by the gospel, at least as a point number two. If you could hit the slide for me, please. Point number two. And so point number one, by review, you see that Judas was driven by greed, but he was overcome by guilt. His guilt overcame him. He was overcome by guilt. But Peter, he was zealously overconfident. He was proud, but overcame through repentance. That's point number two, is Peter zealously overconfident, but overcame through repentance. Now, Peter is passionate about Christ. He has great intentions of faithfulness, but he places his confidence in his own religious abilities to follow Christ. He makes commitments to follow Jesus that are grounded on his own flesh. I want you to see this. Go back to Mark 14 and look at verses 26 to 31. Verses 26 to 31. Verse 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And look at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will fall away. So Jesus actually tells him, You're going to fall away, for it is written. So you know how when we blame Judas and we say, Hey, wasn't it written that Judas had to fall away? Wasn't it written? So so Judas had no chance. Judas fulfilled his own you know, God ordained it. Yes, there's a divine mystery, but Judas could have repented, but he didn't, and that's why he became the son of perdition and full fulfillment. But when you look at this, it says, "Look, look." Jesus says to Peter, "You will and his disi- and the disciples, you will all fall away." For it is written, "I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, be scattered." But look at verse twenty-eight. This is where Peter wasn't listening. Verse 28 says, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee, which means I'm going to go first. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to meet you there again. You're going to all fall away, but we're going to be re- reunited in Galilee. I'm going to go before you there and we're going to meet. But maybe they're just not listening. Now, what Judas, what Jesus is, is saying here when he says, uh, so the scriptures, as it is written, he's referring to Zechariah 13:7. And we don't have to look there, but he's, he's just quoting Zechariah 13:7, warning his disciples that they're all going to scatter, be scattered, right, upon his arrest and, and when he's crucified. But notice in verse 28, he says, After I am raised. That's the gospel. All of us as disciples of Christ will struggle with sin. There will be moments in all of our lives where we momentarily turn away from Jesus for idolatry or, or other things, and he keeps reminding us, remember the resurrection. After I'm raised, it's the resurrection that brings victory. It's the death and resurrection. That's why he, he's going to go die for them. And then notice Peter's overconfidence. Look at verse 29. Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. That's pride, right? Look, you know the other disciples, they're all going to fall away, but not me. Not me, Jesus. I don't doubt, nobody doubts that Peter loved Jesus. But he was proud. Now look at verse 30. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Verse 31. But he said emphatically, right, zealously, passionately, he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. But we know this is Overconfidence, because in the moment of testing, Peter's going to fall on his face. But he says here, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So this is like a ride or die statement, right? Jesus is a ride or die till the end. And then he denies Christ to a servant girl. But when you look at this conversation, here's where I think some people will say, hey, it's not fair for Judas. It's not fair because Satan was motivating Judas. I want you to see that Satan also was messing with Peter, okay? If you'll hit the slide for me. Notice in Luke 22, Luke 22, 31 to 30, 32, Luke 22, 31 to 32, it's the same account of, of the prediction of Peter's denial, but, but this is what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. So Satan has to ask for permission. Interesting. God is completely sovereign, right? Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And Satan does tempt Peter, and Peter does fall temporarily. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But, but look at this. Everyone looking, look at what's underlined on, on the PowerPoint. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why did Peter not remember this? Maybe it did come into his mind after he betrayed Christ, right? Christ has predicted this already. Look, Satan's going to sift you like wheat, and you're going to fall. But when you've turned again, when you've repented, this is beforehand. Jesus is already telling Peter, you're going to fall away, and I'm going to restore you. When you've repented, you're going to go and strengthen your brothers. You're going to go build them up. So Christ has already ordained this trial for Peter's life to shape him because Jesus knows, Peter, how are you going to be a leader in the church if you're so proud and overconfident? You need to learn, Peter. You need to learn through failure that you cannot depend on your own power, that the power of the kingdom is a spiritual power that comes through the spirit, not of the flesh. And so Peter is overconfident. You see this also in the scene of the betrayal, that just like Judas, so that's why people are like, Peter's a good guy, Judas is a bad guy. They're equal until after, after Peter repents, right? They're equal because, because remember what I said that Judas thought and assumed that Jesus would fight back in this whole military power type of kingdom? Look at what Peter does. Peter also goes for the sword. Look at verses 46 to 47 of Mark 14. It says, they laid... They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And so most likely, Peter, he drew his sword. He tried to cut the guy's head off. Really bad aim, right? Definitely not a Marine. Okay? And 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 he missed the guy ducked. The high priest went down for prayer. And no, I'm just kidding. The high, it's a servant of the high priest. It's a servant of the high priest. He went down for prayer boom, cut his ears off. Those who have ears to hear, let him hear. He didn't have ears. But but in, in John eighteen ten <laughs> John 18.10 tells us that, that this is Simon Peter who drew the sword. And Luke 22.51 tells us that Jesus touched the guy's ear and healed him. So you see, this reveals very clearly that Peter doesn't understand the type of power that's needed to be a disciple. And, and this totally makes sense. If you don't understand the power of Christ, then you are going to also depend on your own willpower to follow Christ. And that's why he failed. Right, Matthew 26, <clears throat> uh, next, oh you got me. Okay. Matthew 26, 52 to 53, records what Jesus says to Peter. And so Jesus is making this point. Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? In other words, Peter, if I wanted to fight, there would be no fight. If I wanted to fight, they'd be dead. If I wanted to fight, I'll just snap my fingers and the angels, 12 legions of angels would come down and kill these guys. Peter, you clearly don't understand that the kingdom of God operates on spiritual power. And even how you are trying to be faithful to me, you're trying to operate on human power. And that's why, that's why you see, you see Peter struggle. But notice verses 53 to 54, when Jesus went on trial before the Jewish council, Peter followed from a distance, Mark 14, right? They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. That actual trial we'll cover next week, but I just want you to see that Peter, he, he followed from a distance, So he's afraid. You know, we can relate to that. He wants to follow Jesus, but undercover. He doesn't want people to identify him as a Christ follower. He's afraid of the consequences, but he still wants to follow. He's, at this point, he begins to set himself up, uh, set himself apart from Judas a little bit, right? At least he's willing to follow Jesus into the courtyard. And he was sitting there blending in with the guards. Obviously, otherwise they would have identified him. But jump to Peter's denial. And I want you to see once again why you can contrast him to, um, to Judas. Look at verses 66 to 72 of Mark 14. Mark 14, 66 to 72. It says, and as Peter was, was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. So it's a servant girl, Peter. And, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with, with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. He denied it. Why are you afraid of a servant girl, right? He denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And so he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed, right? So that's once. And the servant girl saw him again and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Verse 70, but again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly... You are one of them for you are a Galilean, and I won't get into that today, but it's just his accent, okay? Uh, verse 71, notice this, this is a betrayal. If you don't call this betrayal, I don't know what is. Look at verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, crows twice, you will deny me three times And he broke down and wept. That's the shame and guilt. So Judas had shame and guilt and and broke down. Look at Peter. He broke down and wept, right? But think about verse 71. So this is the same Peter who says, I'm going to ride and die with you. They're all going to fall away. I'm not. Even if I have to die, I'll go with you. I'll go with you till the end. And then verse 71 is, in other words, it's something as bad as I swear on my own life. I swear on my mother's grave. Something like that. That's what it means, right? I, I swear otherwise my children be cursed. That, that's what it means. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Is that not a betrayal? That is a betrayal. So Peter is, is now despicable, right? And now he's dwelling in shame and guilt. And what makes it worse is the Luke, if you'll hit the slide for me, Luke's version, Luke twenty two sixty 60 to 62, in in Luke 22, Jesus actually looks at Peter when he swears and curses. Look, look at this. So, so he's close enough to Jesus for Jesus to see him and hear him. And so verse 60, it says, Peter said, <clears throat> man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Just think of that. Lord. I will follow you to the end. I will die with you. And then, fast forward, I don't know him. Curse be on me if I know him. And Jesus looks at him. What kind of shame and guilt would that bring? What kind of shame would that bring upon Peter? How is he going to face the disciples? How will he face himself? And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept. He didn't just weep. It says he wept bitterly. And that's the tragedy. So if we were to end the message today here, some of you would be happy. Okay, good. We get to go to lunch, right? But if we were to end the message here, the big idea, if you'll hit the slide for me, please. The big idea from Mark 14 would simply be this. Because Mark 14 just ends it in a tragedy. All of chapter 14, even the end of Mark, right? There is no restoration story. Greed and pride prevent us from seeing the true person, the plan, and the power of Christ. So if you just look at Mark 14, that's the big idea. Greed and pride prevent us from seeing the true person, the plan, and the power of Christ. But we know we're not going to leave you there because the gospel of Mark is a gospel. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Both of them betrayed Christ. Both were ashamed of their actions. Judas realized his sin. He realized he had betrayed an innocent man. He tried to return the money to clear his conscience. But at the end of the day, making things right doesn't save your soul, like we mentioned. So if you were to get into a conflict or a fight with your loved one, right, someone that you love, friend, child, uh, parents, spouse, family member, extended family member, if you get in a fight with someone that you love, You can go and do all these great things for them. You can buy them all these things that you like on the outside. You can can make them a bunch of stuff. But that doesn't satisfy your soul. It doesn't bring healing until you face them face to face and until there's reconciliation and restoration. You know what the difference between Peter and Judas is? A restored relationship. That's the gospel. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter faced Jesus. And was restored. Peter received forgiveness. Right? He he experienced the shame, but he didn't just bear it himself. He he knew that he had to face the Lord. And maybe he remembered finally all the words of Christ when he was humbled. Maybe he finally realized, oh yeah, Jesus said He's going to restore me. In John twenty one, if you'll hit the slide for me, in John twenty one, you get this picture of this this restoration. And I want you to see how much Peter loves Jesus. You and I, if you love Jesus, you will fail. Why? Because we are prone to wander, and we are prone to depend on our own power. We can all raise our hands and say, we love Jesus, but we try to do things ourselves in our own power. I want you to see how much Peter loved Jesus. the same overconfident, overzealous personality. Look at this guy. Verse 7 That that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So Jesus goes to reveal himself after his resurrection to his disciples. Disciples are out in the middle of the lake, and they're fishing because they're fishermen. John sees Jesus in resurrected form coming, and it says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he he just ripped off his clothes. He's like, he put out his under." Uh, outer garment for he was stripped for work threw himself into the sea and the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off so the rest of the disciples are like oh it's the lord we're going to take our time but rather than be ashamed rather than saying you know what i can't face jesus i can't face him i cannot face him i betrayed him you know i should just take my life he jumps into the water He's Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. He jumps into the water. He jumps into the water. It's just like, it's the Lord. Boom. He, he can't wait to face Jesus. He finally understands the gospel of restoration because Jesus died and resurrected for Peter. He jumps in and runs because he loves Jesus. Now, I want you to look at, next slide, please. Um, I want you to look at verses 15 Uh, to 17, same chapter, John 21. It says, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus had said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, notice it says Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he's probably thinking, man, I betrayed him. I betrayed him. I denied him. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. I want you to pause there. This is Peter. This is how we know Peter really loved Jesus. He says, Jesus, you're sovereign. You're omniscient. You know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you, but I couldn't. You know that I love you, but I was afraid. You know that I loved you, but I struggle. You know that I love you, but I can't. I couldn't. You know that I love you. You know I love you. I want to follow you, but I'm so weak. He says, feed my sheep, Jesus says. I think Peter learned his lesson. He Learn the lesson of humility. He learned to take on the cross. And you see this much later when Peter's older. So he goes through, he becomes an apostle. You know that he dies for Jesus eventually as a martyr. But First Peter chapter 5, you can hit, hit the slide for me. What did Jesus tell him three times? Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, right? Feed my sheep. Now, now Peter, what does he, he tell the pastors What does he say to the shepherds that he's writing to in 1 Peter? He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He tells them, shepherd the flock. Jesus told them, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And he gives the same command now. And he says, shepherd the flock. And what does he say though? How do you shepherd the flock? Verse 5. Not with your own flesh. Not with your own power. Not with your own willpower or your good intention. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter learns through failure. God ordained Peter's failure so that he could be the, the, the apostle who understands the gospel of restoration and humility, the humility that's needed to shepherd the flock of God, the humility that's needed to feed Jesus' lambs and to pass that on in disciple-making form. Right? That's the spiritual power of Christ. It is a restorative power. Discipleship begins with us recognizing our own failure, admitting our sin, not trying to bear it ourselves though for the rest of our lives like Judas, not, being, not, not trying to take it in self-centeredly or not being ashamed of what other people are going to say or do, but to face Christ with our sin and to acknowledge that we've violated his law and to acknowledge that we need him, but to know the gospel of restoration. And so the bigger idea, the bigger idea, next slide please, the bigger idea when we consider all of the gospels is that in Christ we preach, we proclaim a redemptive gospel because we continually experience the restorative power of the cross. You and I are going to fall short of his glory today. But every time we go back to the table, the Lord's table, every time we go before him in prayer, every time we go before him in the word, he he continues to restore us by his finished work on the cross. It's done. Salvation is done. but, But it's a restorative power that continues to restore and restore and restore the sinner until we are more and more sanctified like him. And that's why Peter Peter had to learn. The only way that he's going to learn to preach a redemptive gospel is not by him saying, I'm better than all the disciples. I actually didn't fall away. Judas was so wretched, so evil. He's scum, but I'm great, so believe in the gospel. That's not how Peter learned. The reason why he became a powerful expositor of God's truth is because he failed. And betrayed Christ, and experienced redemption, and that became his gospel—a gospel of a Redeemer who restores. That is our Shepherd. And so, if you don't have Christ today, you don't have Christ today. Jesus wants to restore you. Some of you might be sitting here saying, "I need Christ. I Christ wouldn't want me. My life is a betrayal to Him." I want you to invite you today, whether it's I, I don't know, whenever you know, come come talk to us. Come talk to any of the ushers. Come talk to any of the pastors after service or after we pray or whenever. Because we want you to understand the gospel is meant to restore. Some of you are like, you know what? I feel so far away from God. You know, he, he's, he's saying, I want to restore you. So recommit your life to him and respond to the sovereign grace of God. Others of you are just trying to live for him and you're going to struggle with weakness. But remember that the reason why we could do anything for him and preach a redemptive gospel is because we continually experience the restorative power of the cross in our crucified Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we see ourselves in both Judas and Peter in our struggles, but we also see that you went to the cross to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, so that we can look at the cross and say, wow, how marvelous. Father, we need your grace. We need your spirit. Help us. Father, we come before you today and we see ourselves in both Judas and Peter in our struggles. But we also see that you went to the cross to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, so that we can look at the cross and say, wow, how marvelous. Father, we need your grace. We need your spirit. Help us, Lord, not to depend on our own flesh or not to depend on our own power, not to lean on our own understanding, but to fully trust you to guide us through every journey of life, every step of life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.